The Rosicrucian Manifestos by Christian Rabis, FRC. In this recording, Christian Rabis presents the history and narratives of the three Rosicrucian Manifestos published in 1614, 1615, and 1616. The Fama Fraternitatis, the Confessio Fraternitatis, and the Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz from Rosicrucian History and Mysteries. On the eve of the publication of the Rosicrucian Manifestos, Europe was embroiled in the strife engendered by its moral crisis. Everyone was longing for a new Reformation. It was in this context that the Rosicrucians sent out their call proposing new means for restoring harmony. In general, we can say that the Rosicrucian order proposed Hermeticism as a solution for the enveloping crisis. With this intention in mind, an anonymous manifesto, usually called the Fama Fraternitatis, was published in 1614 at the print shop of Wilhelm Wessel in Kassel, Germany. The complete title is Universal and General Reformation of the Whole Wide World, together with the Fama Fraternitatis of the Laudable Fraternity of the Rosy Cross, written to all the learned and rulers of Europe, also a short reply by Herr Hasselmeier, for which he was seized by the Jesuits and put in irons on a galley, now put forth in print and communicated to all true hearts. The text constituting the middle portion, the Fama Fraternitatis, had already been circulating in Germany as a manuscript since 1610. It is the only part that has been retained in modern editions of this manifesto. Introduced by a short preface, the first Rosicrucian manifesto consisted of three distinct texts. The first explained the necessity for a general reformation of the world. Although not indicated, this was a German translation of Notice 77 from Triano Boccalini's book Raguagli di Parnasso, The Advertisements from Parnassus a little-known text published in Venice in 1612. However, it is important, as it placed the Rosicrucian project in context, that is, in describing the necessity for a reorganization of Europe in agony. Thus, it is pertinent that we present here the author's intentions. Boccalini, a friend of Galileo, belonged to the anti-papal circle of the Venetian patriot and statesman Paolo Sarpi. Boccalini's satiric work used mythology to depict the political climate then prevailing in Europe. He criticized the hegemony of the Spanish Habsburg kings over Christian Europe. In many places, Henry IV of France appears as a hero, and one of the scenes in the book emphasizes the despair felt after his assassination in 1610. The portion of the advertisements from Parnassus, quoted in the Fama Fraternitatis, describes how Apollo learned from Emperor Justinian that Earth's inhabitants were suffering great despair due to the incessant quarrels which set them at odds with one another. Apollo was unstinting in his efforts to send countless guides and philosophers to humanity in order to teach them excellent morals, and so he decided to propose a universal reform that would be conducive to restoring humanity to its original purity. To accomplish this end, he assembled on Parnassus the seven sages of Greece, among whom were Cato, Seneca, Thales, Solon, and others. 
Each of the sages made his proposal. Thales, who thought that hypocrisy and deceit were the primary causes of evil among humanity, proposed that a little window be drilled in people's hearts so as to bring about candor and transparency in their relationships. At once, an objection was raised. If each person could see into the hearts of the princes who ruled this world, it would be impossible for them to govern. Thales' proposal was immediately shelved. Solon felt the disorders were provoked by the hates and jealousies raging among humans. Thus, he counseled that charity, love, and tolerance be spread among them. He added that if property could be more equally divided, life would be better. But once again, the critics protested, and the sages of Parnassus called Solon's proposal utopian. Cato proposed an extreme solution, a new flood to remove in a single stroke all evildoers. Finally, after everyone had expressed their ideas, the project of Apollo's universal reform ended up in regulating the price of beans and anchovies. Through this satire, Triano Boccolini illustrated how institutions, whether religious, political, or philosophical, are incapable of making things evolve for the better. The pessimism of this text, which despaired of seeing peace restored to Europe, was followed by the optimism of the first Rosicrucian Manifesto. After the initial text, the Fama Fraternitatis itself appears. Although this piece of literature is quite short, constituting some 30 pages in a book which includes a total of 147 pages, the Fama constitutes the heart of the first Rosicrucian Manifesto. In this work, the Brothers of the Fraternity of the Rose Cross appeal to the rulers, clerics, and scholars of Europe. After having paid their respects to their progressive era, which had witnessed so many discoveries contributed by enlightened minds, they emphasized that, unfortunately, these discoveries had not brought the light and peace for which humanity had hoped. They blamed the scholars, who were more concerned with obtaining personal success than with placing their abilities in service to humanity. Likewise, they pointed to those who clung to the old doctrines, such as the supporters of the Pope and the defenders of Aristotle's philosophy and Galen's medicine. In other words, those who refused to question authority. The Rosicrucian brothers discussed the conflict between theology, physics, and mathematics. Their position was similar to that of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, especially in his definition of magic, which he described as being genuine science. At the beginning of the first book of his De Occulta Philosophia, Agrippa presented magic as being the acme of all science, since all philosophy is divided into three branches of knowledge which complement one another. Physics, mathematics, and theology. Following this inventory of their era, the Rosicrucian brothers proposed to offer their contemporaries a regenerated knowledge this knowledge of infallible axioms came to them from Frater C.R., the founder of their fraternity, who laid down the basis for a universal reform many years before. Who was this mysterious individual, Father C.R.? The answer to this question occupies the remainder of the Fama Fraternitatis. It involved Christian Rosenkreutz, a young German, who, we are informed by the Confessio Fraternitatis, 
was born in 1378. At 16 years of age, he accompanied a brother of a convent who was in charge of his education on a pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. This journey to the East was a true initiatic journey for young Christian. But on their way to Jerusalem, his companion died in Cyprus. According to mythology, Cyprus is the birthplace of Aphrodite, Venus, whose union with Hermes gave birth to Hermaphrodite, an androgynous child. This allusion to Cyprus in Christian Rosenkreutz's biography is replete with alchemical connotations and served as the prelude for themes later developed in the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. Despite the death of his companion, Christian Rosenkreutz decided to continue his journey. However, his destination was changed, and he went instead to Damkar. Contrary to what has sometimes been stated, Damkar is not Damascus, but rather a town in southwestern Arabia, as indicated by Mercator's atlas. Damkar was also mentioned by Abraham Ortelius in his Teatrum Orbis Terrarum as a city located in Arabia Felix. This region, celebrated for its incense, was the home of Ismailism. It was known to have preserved the Corpus Hermeticum. In Damkar, there was a university with no fewer than 500 students. Under the direction of the Brothers of Basra, an important encyclopedia was compiled here that gathered together all forms of knowledge, both scientific and esoteric. In the 20th century, Henry Corbin, quite intrigued by this branch of Islam, strongly tinged by esotericism, took delight in imagining a dialogue between the brothers of the R.C. and the brothers of a pure heart of Basra. He detected in the two fraternities a similar purpose. A little earlier, Émile Dantien made comments along the same lines. While at Damkar, Christian Rosenkreutz associated with Magi who transmitted to him important knowledge, particularly in physics and mathematics, thus enabling him to transcribe the Book M, that is, the Book of the World, into Latin. After three years of study, Christian set out once more on his journeys. After a brief sojourn in Egypt, he arrived in Fez, Morocco. According to the 16th century geographer Leo Africanus, Fez was an important intellectual center. Students flocked to this city, which possessed magnificent libraries. Since the Umayyad era, its schools taught the alchemy of Abu Abdullah, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, and Jabir ibn Hayyan, Jaber, as well as the magic and astrology of Ali Ash Sabramalishi. Leo Africanus stated that at Fez, a form of theurgical magic was practiced, which beginning with a sort of circular pentacle traced on the ground, allowed the practitioner to approach invisible worlds. The Fama Fraternitatis informs us that the magic of these inhabitants of Fez was not altogether pure. Nevertheless, what made a lasting impression on Christian Rosenkreutz was the spirit of sharing which reigned among the scholars in this city, in contrast to the situation in Germany where most of the learned tended to keep their secrets closely guarded. In Fez, Christian Rosenkreutz perfected his knowledge of the harmony of the historical cycles. He also understood that as every seed contains a tree and embryo, in similar fashion, 
The microcosm, human being, contains the macrocosm with all its components, nature, language, religion, medicine. The authors of the Fama Fraternitatis had taken this vision from Paracelsus, who in his Philosophia Sagax stated, In this sense, a human being also is a seed and the world is its apple. And what's true for the seed and the apple is equally true for humans in the world surrounding them. After having completed his studies in mathematics, physics, and magic, Christian Rosenkreutz became acquainted with the elementary inhabitants who revealed unto him many of their secrets. The latter were probably those which Paracelsus describes in his treatise on nymphs, sylphs, pygmies, salamanders, and other beings. These beings, which Paracelsus was said to have seen, did not descend from Adam, although they had a human appearance, but had a different origin. By contacting them, humans could learn the secrets of nature. After this initiatic journey to the East, Christian Rosenkreutz returned to Europe. On his way home, he stopped in Spain to share with the Spanish scholars what he had learned on his journey. He soon realized that these scholars did not wish to have their knowledge questioned. To the authors of the Fama Fraternitatis, the scholars of Spain symbolized those who are restricted to a doctrine which they do not wish to have questioned at the risk of seeing their authority disputed. Disappointed by the closed attitude of the Spanish scholars and having met with similar criticism in other countries, Christian Rosenkreutz returned to Germany. There he undertook to put into writing the sum of learning which he had obtained in the East. His aim was to create a society capable of educating the princes of Europe for they would become the guiding lights. After five years of work, Christian Rosenkreutz surrounded himself with the first group of three disciples to assist him in his projects. Thus was born the Rosicrucian fraternity. Together, the master and his disciples wrote the first part of the book M. Then the fraternity was enlarged with four more brothers. Then they moved into a new building called the Domus Sancti Spiritus, House of the Holy Spirit. The fraternity remained discreet, and Christian Rosenkreutz died in 1484 at the age of 106 years. In 1604, long after the death of the first group of Rosicrucians, the brothers accidentally rediscovered the tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz as they were doing work on their building. Over the door of his tomb appeared the inscription, after 120 years, I shall open. In this cavern, conceived as a summary of the universe, they discovered a quantity of scientific objects, heretofore unknown, and some texts concerning all the knowledge gathered by their master. The discovery of a mysterious tomb holding many manuscripts is a frequent theme in alchemical literature. The example of Basil Valentine, involving a manuscript discovered under the altar of a church in Erfurt, is well known. The discovery of the tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz recalled that of Apollonius of Tiana, who had discovered in the tomb of Hermes Trismegistus the famous emerald tablet and a book explaining the secrets of creation. This symbolic system referred to the concept wherein one may visit the bowels of the earth. By rectifying, thou shalt find the hidden stone. Gerhard Dorn, in his Conjuries Paracelsice Chemicae, gives this meaning to vitriol 
a word which is likewise closely linked with Hermes Trismegistus, since it is associated with an alchemical drawing entitled the Emerald Tablet. Moreover, the Emerald Tablet, which Hermes holds in his hands, seems to foreshadow the Book T of Christian Rosenkreutz. The room where the tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz was discovered took the form of a cupola, or heptahedron. According to Francis A. Yates, the appearance of the tomb may have been suggested by the portal depicted in Plate 4 of the Amphitheatrum Sapientiae Aeternae by Heinrich Kunroth. Placed in the center of a cavern, the tomb in which the perfectly preserved body of Christian Rosenkreutz reposed had a circular form. The tomb was covered by a brass plaque on which enigmatic phrases were engraved. One of them proclaimed, The vacuum exists nowhere. Along with other meanings, this phrase recalls a dialogue between Hermes and Asclepius in Treatise Two of the Corpus Hermeticum. The third Rosicrucian Manifesto includes many allusions to texts attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. Especially noteworthy among the various writings represented in the tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz were Book T, which he held in his hands, and what is called the Vocabulary of Theof Par Ho. The latter text is probably one of the vocabularies of Paracelsus, in particular the Dictionarium Theophrasti Paracelsi, Continens Obscuriorum Vocabulorum, published in 1584 by Gerhard Dorn a disciple of Paracelsus. It may be noted that Paracelsus is the only author referred to in the Fama Fraternitatis. Moreover, many of the themes developed in this manifesto come from his works or those of his disciples. The book M, which we mentioned previously, refers directly to his ideas. We will not delve into this subject here. Nevertheless, we need to point out the concept of Paracelsus's alchemy found in this first manifesto, particularly in the way it viewed the great work, namely as being a preliminary work of little importance in regard to the spiritual procedure of the Rosicrucians. By this stand, the Rose Cross disassociated itself from the alchemical methods pervading Germany in this era and gave rise to considerable excesses. After having gathered together the treasures of learning found in Christian Rosenkreutz's tomb, the Rosicrucian brothers closed it again, fortified by this legacy based upon immutable axioms. They felt ready to bring to fruition the divine and humane general reform previously envisioned by their master. The Fama Fraternitatis reveals that, like the brothers who had discovered a treasure of knowledge after having smashed the wall which concealed the opening of the tomb, Europe would open itself to a new era by adopting new knowledge after having set aside old beliefs that acted like walls to its advancement. However, as the Fama Fraternitatis states, the knowledge which the Rosicrucians proposed was not a new invention, but as Adam, after his fall, hath received it. Thus it involved restoring a lost knowledge that some people are endeavoring to perpetuate. The first manifestos gave the names of various individuals who were the transmitters of the primordial tradition. These names recall those mentioned by Marsilio Ficino in a similar context. The Fama Fraternitatis ends with an invitation to the people of science and to the sovereigns of Europe 
to join the Rosicrucian Brotherhood by sharing in its reforming knowledge. However, this appeal is peculiar, inasmuch as it specifies that although at this time we make no mention either of our names or meetings, yet nevertheless everyone's opinion shall assuredly come to our hands, in what language soever it be, nor anybody shall fail who so gives but his name to speak with some of us, either by word of mouth or else if there be some other let that is issued in writing. This statement indicates in effect that the house of the Rosicrucians shall forever remain untouched, undestroyed, and hidden to the wicked world. This message was heard and the open letters to the Rosicrucians were printed at various places in Europe, such as the one that was published at the end of the first Rosicrucian Manifesto. The text of this letter is what Adam Hasselmeyer published in 1612 with the title of Answer to the Laudable Fraternity of Rosicrucian Theosophists. After having read a manuscript of the Manifesto, which was circulating in the Tyrol in 1610, some four years before it was published, many authors have considered Hasselmeyer to be an imaginary individual. This is not the case, as proved by Carlos Gilly, who, after patient research, succeeded in reconstructing the biography of this Paracelsian, who was a great collector of alchemical manuscripts. Adam Hasselmeyer was so enthusiastic about the Fama Fraternitatis that he asked Archduke Maximilian to subsidize research on the Rosicrucians. The text of his answer to the Rosicrucian Manifesto is strongly influenced by the prophecy of the Lion of the Septentrion and by Joachimism. He made the Rosicrucians the forecasters of the age of the Holy Spirit and felt that they were those that God has chosen to spread the theophrastical and divine eternal truth. He announced that 1613 would mark the end of time and that the great judgment would take place in 1614. He thus thought that attending church was useless, an attitude which led him to be suspected of heresy. Refusing to retract such statements, Hasselmeyer was condemned to the galleys in October 1612. He remained there four and a half years, but during this period he seemed to have enjoyed special treatment because he remained in contact by letter with many other individuals equally fond of alchemy. According to Carlos Gilly, Adam Hasselmeyer's enthusiasm was excessive and was not in full accord with Rosicrucian philosophy. As noted previously, it was in this context of moral crisis that the First Manifesto advocated a program of reform in which esotericism held the place of honor. The Rosicrucians placed themselves in the mainstream of Renaissance esotericism, to which were added some specifically Christian mystical preoccupations. We may also note that this first manifesto did not hesitate to distance itself from the puffers, show-offs, of esotericism, just as it did with all ossified religions. The Rosicrucians wished to move closer to science, esotericism, and mysticism as an optimistic project of reform strongly characterized by Paracelsianism, in placing itself squarely within the primordial tradition, as it was defined in the Renaissance, the Rosicrucians relegated Egypt to a secondary role, 
the enigmatic Hermes Trismegistus, whose legitimacy was compromised by Isaac Casabon in 1614, disappeared in favor of a more human personality, namely Christian Rosenkreutz. In 1615, the year following the publication of the Fama Fraternitatis, Wilhelm Wessel published a second manifesto in Kassel, Germany. Just as the previous manifesto had been supplemented by the advertisements from Parnassus, this second manifesto was accompanied by a text entitled Sacratoris Philosophiae Consideratio Brevis a Filippo Agabella. The full title of the latter, translated into English, reads A Brief Consideration of the More Secret Philosophy, written by Philip Agabella, a student of philosophy, published for the first time with the updated confession of the R.C. Fraternity. The author of this text remains anonymous. In the introduction, he points out that this work involves a philosophical treatise, after noting that it is embellished by the actions, studies, and knowledge of the R.C. Fraternity. A short preface follows, signed Frater R.C., wherein the author indicates that this brief consideration was derived entirely from Hermes, Plato, Seneca, and other philosophers. The first manifesto announced the forthcoming publication of a confession in which 37 reasons for which the order exists would be set forth. The second manifesto did not provide these reasons, but provided information that attempted to make the fama more clear by reformulating anything too deep, hidden, and set down over dark in the fama. The Confessio Fraternitatis, or the Confession of the Laudable Fraternity of the Most Honorable Order of the Rosy Cross, written to the learned of Europe, was divided into 14 sections, although later editions did not always observe this division. In this text, the Rosicrucians emphasize that they possess the antidote for the disease which gnaws at science and philosophy, because they hold the key to all knowledge, whether it be the arts, philosophy, theology, or medicine. They also give new particulars as to the sources of their knowledge, indicating that they do not simply come from investigations carried out by Christian Rosenkreutz, but also from those revelations he obtained by divine illumination brought about through the meditation of angels. The Confessio Fraternitatis declared that the sages of the city of Damkar would set an example for Rosicrucians, according unto which example also the government shall be instituted in Europe. These individuals were said to have a plan established for this purpose by Christian Rosenkreutz. As in the first manifesto, the Rosicrucians invited people of their era to join their fraternity and proposed that these seekers unite with them for the purpose of constructing a new fortress of truth. They promised health, omniscience, and inner calm to everyone who wanted to be initiated into the heritage of all nature's bounties. However, they warned those who were blinded with the glistening of gold and who wanted to join their fraternity with the aim of obtaining material profits that they would never be admitted. The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, a book that is considered to be the third Rosicrucian Manifesto, made its appearance in 1616. It was printed in Strasbourg by Lazarus Zetzner, the publisher of Theatrum Chemicum, 
and numerous other alchemical treatises. This work differs considerably from the first two manifestos. First of all, although it was likewise published anonymously, it is known that Johann Valentin Andreae was the author. Secondly, it is unusual in form in that it is presented as an alchemical novel and as an autobiography of Christian Rosenkreutz. Briefly, here is the story. For an in-depth description of the story of the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, see the Rosicrucian Digest Alchemy Issue. Christian Rosenkreutz, an elderly man who is 81 years old, describes his adventures over a seven-day period in 1459. After being summoned to a royal wedding by a winged messenger, Christian leaves his retreat, situated on a mountain slope. After various incidents, he arrives at the summit of a high mountain and then passes through a succession of three gates. Once within, he and the other people who have been invited are put to a test in which they are weighed on scales. If they are judged virtuous enough, they are allowed to attend the wedding. The select few receive a golden fleece and are presented to the royal family. After being brought before the royal family, Christian Rosenkreutz describes the presentation of a play. This is followed by a banquet, after which the royal family is decapitated. The coffins containing the corpses are loaded onto seven ships bound for a distant island. Arriving at their destination, they are placed in the Tower of Olympus, a curious seven-story edifice. For the remainder of the narrative, we witness the strange ascent of the guests through the seven stories of the tower. At each level, under the direction of a maiden and an old man, they participate in alchemical operations. They carry out a distillation of the royal skins from which a liquid is obtained that is afterwards transformed into a white egg. From this, a bird is hatched that is fattened before being decapitated and reduced to ashes. From the residue, the guests fabricate two human-shaped figurines. These homunculi are fed until they become the size of adults. A final operation communicates to them the spark of life. The two homunculi are none other than the king and queen who have been restored to life. Shortly afterwards, they welcome their guests into the order of the Golden Stone and all return to the castle. However, Christian Rosenkreutz, at the time of his first day in the castle, committed the indiscretion of entering the mausoleum where the sleeping Venus reposes. His inquisitiveness condemns him to become the guardian of the castle. The sentence does not seem to be executed because the narrative suddenly ends with the return of Christian Rosenkreutz to his cottage. The author leaves us to understand that the hermit, who is 81 years old, does not have many more years to live. This last statement seems to contradict the Fama Fraternitatis, which claimed that Christian Rosenkreutz lived to the venerable age of 106. Moreover, other aspects of the narrative depict a Christian Rosenkreutz who is quite at odds with the one presented in the earlier manifestos. Countless scholars have speculated as to who wrote the first two Rosicrucian manifestos and what the sources were that they drew upon. We may note here the influence of the medieval era as the infallible axiom 
to which the manifestos refer, recalled the Ars Magna of Raymond Lully, whose works were published in 1598 by Lazarus Zetzner, the famed publisher of Strasbourg. The Rhenish mystic had also considerably influenced the authors of the early Rosicrucian writings, particularly by way of Johann Arndt, who shall be discussed later. However, the Fama and the Confessio draw essentially from three currents of the tradition, Paracelsianism, contemporary Neo-Joachimism, and the Hermeticism of the Renaissance. It is not by accident that Paracelsus is the only author praised by the Manifestos, as he constituted a primary source for the ideas presented in these writings. The need for sharing the knowledge acquired from various parts of the world, the fact that man is a microcosm, the reference to the Liber Mundi and to the dwellers of elementary worlds, or more particularly the metaphor of the seed, are themes in the Manifestos originating with Paracelsus. Let us recall that in Christian Rosenkreutz's tomb there appeared a book called the Vocabular of Theof Par O, identified as being one of the dictionaries of Paracelsian terms published by the 17th century. Such influences are perfectly understandable in that Paracelsian texts were widely read during the time of the Manifestos. Between 1589 and 1591, Johann Husser had published Paracelsus's complete works, following the enormous task of researching his manuscripts. A second edition was then issued in ten volumes between 1603 and 1605 by Lazarus Zetzner, the future editor of Johann Valentin Andreae's works. Neo-Joachimism is ever-present in the Manifestos. The theories of Joachim Fiore experienced a revival of interest in the 16th century, as had the prophecy of Elijah or that of the Lion of the Septentrion, along with the many predictions of channeling the people's aspiration for renewal, a reformation that allowed the 16th century's numerous conflicts to be calmed. Renaissance Hermeticism is also present in Rosicrucian texts, particularly in connection with alchemy. However, it should be noted that the Kabbalah, both Jewish and Christian, occupies a minor role here. Other influences are equally apparent, such as those regarding time, which is presented as being cyclic. These texts could very well refer to Ismailism, with Damkar being one of the sources. The study of the ideas expressed in the Manifestos allows us to hypothesize about their authors. Most present-day experts agree that they were not the work of one person, but rather of a small group of students and scholars living in Tübingen, a university town in Württemberg, Germany. This group was called the Tübingen Circle. It was formed around 1608 and consisted of about 30 individuals who were passionate about alchemy, Kabbalah, astrology, neometry, and Christian mysticism. The most important individuals included Johann Arndt, Tobias Hess, Abraham Hötzl, the pastor Vischer, Christoph Besold, and Wilhelm von Wenzel. They conceived the project of another Reformation, contemplating those of Luther and Calvin, which were judged to be inadequate. Two of these scholars, Tobias Hess and Abraham Hötzl, 
were previously involved in a movement for circulating esoteric and mystical works among the faculty of the university. Johann Arndt, considered by André to be a spiritual father, was the group's mentor. A pastor, theologian, physician, alchemist, and keen follower of Johannes Tauler and Valentin Weigel, he was the author of a commentary on the plates of Heinrich Kunroth's Amphitheatrum Sapientiae Eternae. According to a letter written on January 29, 1621, to the Duke of Brunswick, his desire was to lead students and researchers away from polemical theology and to bring them back to a living faith, to a practice of piety. He was the popularizer of the imitation of Christ. His mystical tendencies are noticeable in his sermons on the Gospels or on Luther's small catechism and in his collection of prayers entitled Paradis Gertlein aller Christlichen Tugenden. He wrote a devotional text entitled Vier Bücher von Varum Christentum, Four Books on True Christianity, that was one of the most widely read until the 19th century. Both a mystic and an alchemist, he attempted to integrate the Paracelsian heritage with medieval theology, and in this latter work, he developed the idea of an inner alchemy of a spiritual renaissance. Rowling Eddinghofer has shown that an entire passage of the Confessio Fraternitatis discussing the Book of Nature is taken almost word for word from the final volume of Arndt's Four Books on True Christianity. In his De Antiqua Philosophia, Arndt emphasizes that wisdom is found not in speculation, but in the practical, a concept also found in the Manifestos. He is considered to be one of the instigators of pietism. In 1691, Johannes Kelpius and his followers took Arndt's works with them as they left for the New World. According to a letter from Johann Arndt, found among the papers of the theosophist Christoph Hirsch, Johann Valentin André acknowledged having written the Fama Fraternitatis with 30 other people. Another letter sent by Johann Valentin André to his friend John Amos Comenius made the same claim. However, some questions have been raised regarding the authenticity of these letters. Tobias Hess was one of the most important members of the Tübingen Circle, perhaps even its instigator. His preoccupations synthesized perfectly the various elements presented in the manifestos. Hess, who was a member of Tübingen University, a Paracelsian physicist, Kabbalist, philosopher, and admirer of Simon Studion, Julius Sperber, and Joachim Fiore, probably played a fundamental role in drafting the Fama and Confessio. In 1605, he was accused of practicing naometry and continued to promote millennialism in certain publications where he expressed himself to be in favor of worldwide reform. The Fama repeated his idea, which basically declares, it is wrong to claim that what is true in philosophy is false in theology. Hess was also accused of being an instigator of a secret society. Even though his accusers did not provide the name of this society, it is probable that they were referring to the Rosicrucian order, whose first manifesto was circulating at this time in manuscript form. Tobias Hess was associated with Oswald Kroll, a disciple of Paracelsus. 
Due to his medical talents, Hess had healed Andre of a terrible fever, and the latter admired him immensely. Hess died in 1614, just before the publication of the Manifestos, and his funeral oration was delivered by Andre. This text was printed afterwards, and curiously enough, as Roland Edinghofer notes, it included the following words in italic type, Tobias Hess and Fama, the only ones in the book, as though to emphasize a link between the two. An astonishing fact should be mentioned. In 1616, André published anonymously Tecla Gladii Spiritus, The Sheath of the Glory of the Spirit, indicating in the book's preface that it was authored by Tobias Hess. Interestingly enough, 48 passages of this book are taken from the Confessio. In his autobiography, André would later acknowledge that all of the text found in the Tecla was his. Can we not conclude from this that Hess was the author of either a part or the entirety of the Confessio Fraternitatis? As early as 1699, in his Un Partesia Kirchen und Ketze Historia, History of the Church and of Heretics, Gottfried Arnold claimed that Johann Valentin André was the author of the Rosicrucian Manifestos. For a long time, this theory was considered to be authoritative. In André's case, we are dealing with a particularly noteworthy individual whom we will discuss in further detail when we touch upon the third manifesto, The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. However, André took pains to distance himself from the Rosicrucians, and in one of his books, Menippus, he speaks harshly about the Rosicrucian fraternity when he deals with ludibrium, in other words, farce or mockery. Nevertheless, as Francis Yates indicates, these terms are not forceful pejoratives when spoken by André, because he attached considerable importance to the moral influence of stories and the theater. His literary output, likewise, testifies to this interest. It should be added that throughout his life, he did his best to organize societies or associations corresponding in many ways to the project presented in the manifestos. It appears that André basically took an official position in opposition to the manifestos so as to protect his religious career. It may be said that unforeseen circumstances led to the publication of the Fama Fraternitatis at the exact moment when, after a series of difficulties, André finally obtained the post of deacon at Weihingen and married Elizabeth Gründinger, the daughter of a pastor and niece of a Lutheran prelate. Much speculation has swirled around the subject of the possible authors of the manifestos. However, none of them is entirely satisfactory. Although the author of the early manifestos has kept his secret well, Tobias Hess and Johann Valentin André probably played a fundamental role in developing these works. Let us return to Christian Rosenkreutz, the individual presented by the manifestos as the founder of Rosicrucianism. Are we dealing here with a real or a mythical individual? As many have stated, these texts do not recount the biography of one person because they involve initiatic narratives that present many facets. What can be generally said is that through the travels of Christian Rosenkreutz, his sojourns in the Arab lands and then in Spain, 
we may rediscover the advances which various esoteric sciences made when passing from the East to West. These sciences, after having experienced further development in Europe, were to come into full bloom under Paracelsus. After his death, Valentin Weigel and other individuals succeeded in rectifying any flaws and enriched them with the mysticism of the Rhineland and Flanders. What Rosicrucians proposed was to recover this heritage and include it in the body of knowledge of an era that they envisioned as being the dawn of a new age. Many elements contribute in proving that the manifestos are symbolic narratives. For example, the important dates in Christian Rosenkreutz's life correspond to significant historical events. The year of his birth, 1378, corresponds to the year of the Great Schism in the West, in which Avignon and Rome were at loggerheads. And that of his death, 1484, corresponds to the year that Martin Luther, the individual who attempted to reform Christianity, was born. Although it is now thought that Luther was born in 1483, his own mother wavered between 1483 and 1484, and Luther himself opted for 1484. There exists an astrological tradition based on the studies of Paulus von Middelberg and Johannes Lichtenberger, who saw his birth sign in the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that took place in Scorpio in 1484. Equally significant is that the writings relating to Paracelsus's texts were placed in Christian Rosenkreutz's tomb in 1484, but keep in mind that Paracelsus could not have written anything yet, seeing that he was born in 1493. The theme of the discovery of a tomb is a recurring symbol in the tradition, and we will have occasion to return to this subject later. Only one step separates symbol from invention and certain authors do not hesitate to cross the threshold. Several historians have pointed out that the authors of the manifestos did not need to adapt the biographies of real persons to invent Christian Rosenkreutz. Paul Arnold has shown that several mystics bear uncanny similarities to Christian Rosenkreutz. First, there is Joachim Fiore, who undertook the foundation of a fraternity after his travels to the Orient. Then there are Ruhlmann Mersfen, the founder of the Friends of God, and Gerhard Grote, the creator of the Brothers of the Common Life. The latter group promoted the Devotio Moderna, a spiritual movement which emphasized the inner experience. The most beautiful flowering of this movement is seen in The Imitation of Christ, a book which had considerable influence on Rosicrucians. Paul Arnold's observances are of interest in that the parallels between these personalities and Christian Rosenkreutz are striking, even though notable differences do exist. In addition, many of the ideas promulgated by these mystics are found in the manifestos. It is possible to view such matters from another angle, as the manifestos can also be read as the account of a spiritual experience. They fall within an indisputable historical context, but as with all initiatic accounts, they are associated with a meta-history that goes beyond a mere chronology. This is where we leave the historical realm and place ourselves on another level, one whose characteristics need to be defined so that we may understand the meaning of the Rosicrucian Manifestos. <laughs>